good morning and Merry Christmas. Yeah. <clears throat> For those who don't know me, my name is Paul Winger. Uh, I'm an elder here at Calvary Baptist Church. Perhaps you know my wife, Jennifer, Director of Women's Ministry. Uh, for Calvary and Mile One Mission. You might be interested to know that Jennifer and I first started attending Calvary Baptist Church. It was the winter of 1999, and uh, some of you weren't even born then, <laughs> believe it or not. The church was only in its sixth year, having started just a few years earlier in 1993 and was worshiping at that time uh, at 415 Kenmount Road. I thought I was a Christian, um, but thank you, uh, Pastor Randy Stanton and the elders, although we called them deacons back then, through good teaching and preaching and small group ministry um, and discipleship, I surrendered and I gave my life to Jesus. And uh, I hardly know where the last 25 years have gone. In April, I turned 52. And over the past 25 years, this church has been an instrument of God's grace in my life. I love this church. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that God will grant me another 25 years and maybe even more on top of that. One of the things I've become acutely aware of as I've been getting a little bit older is that these bodies, my body, wasn't made to last forever. Like all of you, I am decaying. More aches and pains, it seems, every week. And like a lot of people, I've noticed that my eyesight has been deteriorating. Started in my late 40s, I started needing reading glasses to see a little bit better. And that's not really surprising. A lot of people in their 40s need reading glasses. And I spoke to my optometrist about it, and he said, Paul, there's only three things you can count on in life. That's not true, by the way. Uh, death, taxes, and reading glasses. It's a nice little rhyme. I thought it was cute. Uh, he's wrong. There's more than three things you can count on in life. You wouldn't be here if you thought so. But more than just reading glasses to help me see properly, I've discovered I need more light, more light to see properly. That wasn't something I expected. I seem to be struggling turning on the flashlight on my phone more and more just to see, even to get a can of soup out of the cupboard or plug in a USB drive, I'm turning on the flashlight to help me see. Of course, letting the internet help diagnose this condition, I, uh, I type into Google, why do I need more light as and it'll finish the sentence. As I get older? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I need. I need more light as I get older. It's common, it's uh, the condition, and of course, I don't know how to pronounce it because the internet doesn't tell you how to pronounce things, but I'm assuming it's called presbyopia. And it's, a, it's normal as you age, the tiny muscles that control and help you dilate your pupils, well, they weaken. Pupils get smaller, they're less responsive to light, and uh, well, I guess my pupils are getting smaller, so feel free to call me a beady-eyed old man. <laughs> but all this has me thinking more and more about light. Many of you might remember your high school science class or your physics class where we learned that light is actually a wave. Light is, or at least visible light, is part of the much broader range of electromagnetic radiation. And our eyes are made, we have spectral sensitivity, we can actually see in a very narrow band of visible light in the wavelengths of 400 to 700 nanometers. We can't see below 400 nanometers, that would be UV rays and X-rays and gamma rays. And we can't really see above 700 nanometers, that would be 
um, ultraviolet, or that would be infrared, microwave, and radio wave, as interesting it would, as it would be to see that. So we live our whole life in this narrow range of 400 to 700 nanometers. That's the way God made us. It is visible light. It is the Roy G. Biv of life. Red, orange, yellow, blue, green, violet. That's the order of the rainbow, always has been and always will be. But Genesis 1 tells us that God actually created light. And it was good. And it separated light from darkness. And most of the light that you and I enjoy today, where does it come from? Well, most of it actually comes from the sun. And this little planet that we call home, it orbits the earth once every 365 days. And in April, I'll have orbited the sun 52 times. 52 winters, springs, falls, and summers. The sun, of course, is a star, and it creates light. And that light, in the form of photons, these little massless particles that travel at the speed of light, by the way, the speed of light is about 300,000 kilometers per second. It's stupid fast. Nothing travels faster than the speed of light. And we can turn the equation around. If we know the speed of light and we know our distance from the sun, well, we can calculate how much time it takes for light to actually get from the sun to earth. I don't know if you've ever wondered that. This light that you enjoy through, through these stained glass windows and through this beautiful stained glass window above me, it left the sun about 8.3 minutes ago. If the sun goes supernova, we won't know it until about 8.3 minutes later. <laughs> if you look at the night sky and you enjoy and you like looking at stars, the closest star to us other than our own sun is called Alpha Centauri. The, the light from that star, it left 4.3 years ago. That's how far away it is. The brightest star in the night sky called Sirius, like Sirius FM radio, it left about nine years ago. But as interesting as all that is, not all light that you and I enjoy does come from the sun or from the stars. In fact, humans have learned how to make light over thousands of years. Our forefathers survived using torches and candles and oil lamps. The first light bulb wasn't actually invented until 1809. That's only about 200 years ago, folks. And it should blow our mind that we can produce light, even all of you here today, simply by looking at your phone and asking it, torch on. Light is a beautiful thing. It cleanses and it purifies and it provides hope. We have the Advent wreath here. And this is the Advent season when you'll start to see a lot of candles around. So this is the start of the Advent season. This is Christmas after all, and you may get the chance this Christmas season to talk to somebody about the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus. And so, but as we roll out this Advent season, Pastor Steve already told you about the word rejoice. We're going to rejoice as brothers and sisters in Christ. This sermon, we will rejoice with the prophets. And in the subsequent Sundays, as we lead toward Christmas, we will rejoice with Mary. We will rejoice with the angels. We will rejoice with the shepherds. On Christmas Eve, we'll rejoice with those who are already rejoicing in heaven. And on New Year's Eve day morning, we will rejoice that we have good news, that we have the gospel to share to a lost world. So I get the pleasure of kicking off this Advent sermon series. And as I said, this is a time of year, Pastor Steve said, this is a time of year we get to think about the birth of Jesus. 
So maybe you'll get a chance this Christmas to talk to somebody about the birth of Jesus. And if you get that chance, where do you start? Where do you start if you get the chance to talk to somebody about the birth of Jesus? Like Matthew, you could start with a long lesson in genealogy. Some people like that. Or like Luke, maybe you'll start with a story. You'll start with a story. Once upon a time, there was an angel named Gabriel who came down and met with Mary and foretold her all the things that would happen. That's a beautiful way to talk about the birth of Jesus. Or you could go even further back, way back to a promise, the promise of a light that would bring hope. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at a promise, a promise of light. If you haven't already, this is a good time to open your Bibles once again and turn with me to the Old Testament. Turn with me to Isaiah. It's pretty much smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. It is one of the major prophets right after the books of Psalms and Proverbs. And while you're turning there, maybe a few things I can tell you about Isaiah. He was a real historical man. He was not fictional in any way. He lived in Jerusalem. He was a son of Amoz, a descendant of Tamar and Judah. And his ministry started around 700 years B.C., before Christ. And he prophesied during the reign of four different kings of Judah. They were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was a prophet. Which means he spoke on behalf of God to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. And he served during a particularly stormy period when the Assyrian Empire was expanding and Israel was in decline. And he spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come, while it would come at a cost. That God was going to use the empires of Assyria and later on Babylon to judge Israel if they persisted in their idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that message also came with a message of hope. Isaiah deeply believed that God would one day fulfill his covenant promises, that there would be a king from the line of David, and that ultimately God's blessings would flow to all the nations, even the Gentiles. And it's this hope that compelled him to speak out against the corruption within Israel. Now, Isaiah is a big book. It's a complicated book. It has prose and poetry, messages of judgment, messages of hope. And compared to the rest of your Bible, Isaiah is unique in the number of Old Testament prophecies. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah actually shared hundreds of prophecies. No other Old Testament prophet had such a clear vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. No other Old Testament prophet had such a clear vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw him sitting on a throne. He knew that he would be born of a virgin and be called Emmanuel, God with us. He knew that he would be a son of David. He knew that he would spring up like a shoot from Jesse's stump and be anointed with the Holy Spirit so that he could rule the nations justly. He knew that he would lead a sinless life, that he would do great signs and wonders of healing, that he would be a suffering servant, that he would die an atoning death, that he would rise from the dead, that he would overcome death, that he would care for bruised reeds like you and me, brokenhearted sinners, 
and he would gradually build a kingdom for himself and that the zeal of the Lord would accomplish all of this. If you read Isaiah, you will find doctrines of judgment, election, repentance, salvation by faith alone, and the transforming power of God's grace for those who are justified. No other book of any religion provides such predictive prophecy, not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not Islam. But as I said a moment ago, not all of Isaiah's prophecies were actually prophecies of hope. Some were of judgment. Take a look at chapter 8. Isaiah foretells the invasion of the Assyrian army. He leaves no doubt that Assyria is an instrument in the hand of God, bringing judgment and punishment on Israel. And the impending invasion would bring deep distress. It's a prophecy of destruction. And the chapter ends with a final verse saying, And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. And then a message of hope. God gives Isaiah another vision. Dimly lit, looking even further into the future, 700 years into the future. A prophecy of deliverance, starting in chapter 9. Perhaps the heading in your Bible says something like, for us, for to us a child is born. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This is verse 1, chapter 9. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, past tense, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Make no mistake, this is a messianic prophecy. Jesus was not plan B. He was always the plan. Let's look closer. Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah says, one day, one day there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. So he points to a, a former time, a time of gloom. And it's probably a pointer to Second Kings 15 when Assyria had captured some of the people in the northern parts of Israel. And took them captive to, to Assyria. And it would have been a crushing time, a time of great gloom. And Isaiah refers specifically to the regions of, of Zebulun and Naphtali by name. These were tribes. These were sons of Jacob. They were the peoples that flowed from them and the land that was apportioned to them in Joshua. And they were located in the northern part of Israel. And they probably felt the invasion of the Assyrian army most acutely. By the way, the army, as it occupied Israel, and they captured some of the northern regions, they never did take Jerusalem. Oh yes, they got as far as Jerusalem, they encamped outside Jerusalem, they hurled insults at our living God, but they never took Jerusalem. The evil king Sennacherib said our God couldn't protect it. It should make you mad to read 2 Kings 18. Listen to what the field commander said of the Assyrian army as he hurls insults at Jerusalem. He says, has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Who of all the gods, who of all these countries have been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord, and he mentions Yahweh by name, how then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Do you know our God? 
That night, an angel of the Lord went through the camp and put to death 185,000 men. It says there was dead bodies everywhere. And you can read about it in 2 Kings 19. It says the next morning, the evil king Sennacherib, he rose, broke camp, and retreated in Nineveh and was subsequently cut down by the sword. But that doesn't mean that Israel's problems were over. No, there was still the invasion of the Babylonian Empire. This was, I say all this just to say that this was a time of deep darkness for Israel. These were what Isaiah calls the former times. Continuing in our passage in chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah now paints a picture of the latter times, a time of glory from gloom to glory. By the way, the reference to the sea um, in verse 1 is most likely a reference to the Sea of Galilee, which was nearby. But how? How do we go from gloom to glory? How do we go from darkness to light? Well, Isaiah knows the answer. It will come in the form of a Messiah. The great light he mentions in verse 2 will actually come as a child. See verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And this is more than just Old Testament academically interesting stuff. The apostle Matthew, the disciple Matthew, knew so and taught so. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Picking up in verse 12. Matthew teaches us. He teaches us that Jesus Christ is ultimately in view here. If we look at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4, Matthew writes, Now when he heard that John had been arrested. Well, that's actually Jesus hearing about the arrest of John the Baptist. He withdrew. He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in, the, in, the, in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. We've been talking about these regions. Why would Jesus do that? Matthew knows we'll ask the question, so he answers it for us. Matthew writes, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he points to Isaiah, might be fulfilled. And then Matthew quotes this morning's passage. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Hang on. Notice Matthew's change in slight wording. Where Isaiah said Galilee of the nations, Matthew says Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew wants us to know in the clearest of terms that the light that Isaiah prophesied would actually come to both Jews and Gentiles. Matthew then continues, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He's quoting Isaiah 9. And that brings us to the end of Matthew 4.16, which is almost the end of this little section that Matthew writes. But yet there's one more verse that just glued on. It's verse 17. Matthew writes, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, why would Matthew do that? Why would Matthew add a message of repentance? I think that's the how. I think that's how we go from gloom to glory. That's how we go from darkness to light. Jesus commands us to repent and to follow him. He is the light. Or you can take him at his word. In John 8, 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pastor Steve shared that verse. It was our call to assurance earlier this morning. Jesus is the light that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 9. 
He came to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of unending light. That's Colossians 1.13. He came to become the darkness of our sin for us so that in him we might become the light of God's perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And he came that we might live unashamedly in the light. He came that we might live unashamedly in the light. Do you want to live in the light? Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a life-changing invitation. It says following Jesus is more than just tagging along. It's, 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 it's a beautiful invitation. It's a, it's a born-again type of following. It means that you're so in love with Jesus that you actually are joined to him. Jesus says when you follow him, you have him. You have the light of life. I am the light, whoever follows me, you will have the light. You will have me, he says, as your light. If you follow me, you have me. I am yours. I am your shepherd. I am your sacrifice. I am your living water. I am your light. Notice the phrase at the end of John 12. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's the connection between light and life? Light of life, what does that mean? John 1.4 gives us the answer. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's the life that gives the light. The life Jesus has and the life he shares with those who follow him gives them light. Spiritual light. In other words, we were dead and blind to light, and then in a moment... By an act of grace, we're born again, and the life of Jesus is imparted to us. And we see the eyes of our hearts are opened, and the divine light streams into our living spirits, and thus we have the light of life. The light that comes from new, spiritual, eye-opening light. The life gives sight to a blind soul. It's life, it's eternal life-giving sight. This is God's cosmic plan, to redeem a people for himself, you and me living together for eternity, forever. By the way, on this side of the kingdom, we need the sun, we need the stars, we need flashlights, and we need light bulbs. But in heaven, oh, there will be no darkness, no night. Apostle John has a vision in Revelation 21. He writes, and the city, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives light and the lamp is the lamb we will see Jesus and he will be the lamp Revelation 22 goes even further no longer will there be anything accursed there'll be no sin in heaven but the throne of God and of the lamp will be in it and we and his servants will worship him they will see his face you will see Jesus' face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. I don't know how, but that sounds kind of cool. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever, and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. We rejoice in a God who keeps his promises. Some have been realized. Some are yet to come. We remember in the promises fulfilled like Isaiah 9, and we stand firm on the promises to come. But, 
But yet, as sinners living in a fallen world, we experience darkness every day. In fact, on any given day, you probably experience more darkness than you do truth. So if we're going to move forward, if we're going to make our way through this world, we need something to light our way. I wonder what that could be. The psalmist in 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need light. We need light for our marriages. We need light to help us parent. We need light to help us with our parents. We need light for our job and for our neighbors and for our co-workers. We need light for the struggles and desires and temptations that we feel. We need light to help us deal with the unexpected. We need light to help us cope with the difficulties that emerge each week. We need light for when we sin and when we've been sinned against. We need light to deal with the weaknesses of the body and the hardships of the heart. We need light for those moments when we're overwhelmed and we need light for those moments when we're alone. But 119.105 can be difficult to understand. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What does that mean? There was a well-known preacher, you know the name, Charles Spurgeon. He actually painted a word picture, which is really helpful for, how do I take that verse in Psalm 119 and apply it to my daily life? He paints a beautiful picture. I want to share it with you. It's a little long, but I think you'll enjoy it. It's kind of written as if it were in the 1800s, but I think you'll enjoy it. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote about Psalm 119, verse 105. He says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, Oh, we are walkers through the city of this world, and we are often called to go out into darkness. Let us never venture there without the light-giving word, lest we slip with our feet. Each man and woman should use the word of God personally, practically, and habitually, so that they may see their way and see what lies in it. When darkness settles down all around me, the word of the Lord, like a flaming torch, reveals my way. Having no street lamps... That was, it was the 1800s. (laughs) Having no street lamps, each person must carry a lantern with them that they might not fall into an open sewer or stumble over heaps of horse dung which defile the road. They had horses and carriages back then. This is a true word picture, he says. And he goes on, he says, we would not know the way or how to walk in it if scripture, like a blazing torch, did not reveal it. One of the most practical benefits of the Holy Word is its guidance in the acts of daily life, he says. It was not sent to astound us with its brilliance, but to guide us by its instruction. It is true the head needs illumination, but even more the feet need direction, else both head and feet fall in a ditch. Happy is the man who personally appropriates God's Word and practically uses it as his comfort and counselor a lamp to his own feet. Yes, the word provides light. God is light. Jesus is the promised light, and you and I have that light in us to share with the lost world. This Christmas, I invite you to rejoice in a God who keeps his promises. Some of those promises have been revealed. Some have yet to be revealed. We remember the promises fulfilled, such as Isaiah 9, so that we might stand firm on the promises to come. And I encourage you to be salt and light this Christmas season. 
Use the free time you have this season to start a new habit. Read your Bible every day. Just a little bit. Maybe a psalm, maybe a proverb, and if you don't desire it, that's okay. We've all been there. What do you do? You ask God to give you the desire. He can do that. He's big enough. Because here's my warning. If you're not reading your Bible every day, well, then I'm afraid Satan is winning. That's exactly what he wants. He wants you lukewarm. He wants you coasting. Satan doesn't want you walking in the light. He doesn't want the word to illuminate your path. He's more than happy to let your feet rush into sin or, as Charles Spurgeon says, fall into an open sewer. Fight with me this Christmas. Fight with the elders. Fight with each other. Fight with your family members to take back the spiritual discipline of reading your Bible every day. Don't wait and make it a New Year's resolution. Why wait? You've got free time this Christmas. Use the free time to start a new habit. Let us shine like stars, boasting in the incomprehensible gift of knowing Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who keeps his promises and will keep his promises, that you're in the business of changing people, redeeming people for yourself, and that you have a cosmic plan that we will join you face-to-face, Jesus, in heaven. For those who put their trust in you, we will see you face-to-face, and your name will be on our foreheads, and we won't need the sun, we won't need the moon, we won't need stars, we won't need flashlights or light bulbs, because the lamp... Lord Jesus, you will be the lamp. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day when you will come again. Bless us now. Amen.